0: All right, so we're going to be talking about, uh, we began the book of Zechariah last week. So um, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. And if you don't know where Zechariah is at, it's the next to last book of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew, scoot your way back two books. You'll go Malachi, and then you'll get to Zechariah. And we spoke on the first two chapters of Zechariah last week, but I'll bring you up to speed since a lot of you weren't here last week. Yeah, there you go. So, so Zechariah is uh, is a prophet that was, his initial prophecy began 18 years after the exiles returned from Babylon. You may remember that Israel, the southern kingdom, was exiled in 586 BC. They went off to Babylon and they were there for 70 years. And in that 70 years, God was dealing with them, He sent them out for national sin sent them out they were there but God had prophesied they were gonna go out but he also said they were gonna come back and so that's what they ended up and so what ends up happening in that 70 year time frame they come back 18 years have passed now and God raises up two prophets one's Haggai and the other one is Zechariah and what God wanted was the temple to be rebuilt and he raises up this prophet Zechariah with a message that was going to be written to the people to encourage them in the process of building the temple. You got to remember at this time, Jerusalem, the, everything was destroyed. So they're coming back, and it's it's a mess. So they come back, they got no walls, they've got no um, they've got no army. There's only forty-three thousand of them that end up coming back. So they're in this constant state of worry that. We're never gonna get this thing built. We got people coming against us. They actually had the Samaritans come down and stop them from building it. But God said, God raised up these prophets to tell them, hey, get back to building the temple. I want you to build the temple. So that's, that's what this comes into play. This is how this prophet Zechariah comes to be, um, making this prophecy. So he wanted it rebuilt. And Zechariah's initial call, when you look at the first chapter of Zechariah, the first thing that God wanted his people to do was return to him. That was the first message, repentance, come back to me. They were back in the land now, but they weren't really back to God. They were just doing whatever it was they were doing. They were worried about trying to just live. And he said, I want you to turn back to me. So that was the first thing. And so that was the first section, repent. Then he gets into what's very interesting with Zechariah. God gives him eight visions of the beautiful future for Jerusalem, for Israel that's what he ends up getting to see. So what we have is a first vision starts one night he begins and we have this first vision and the vision the first vision was of this rider on a red horse standing in some myrtle trees in a hollow and we find out that this person who's sitting on this red horse is the angel of the lord. So this is Christ standing there outside the city ready to take vengeance against the people who had done these bad things because God had used these other nations to take Israel into, Bab- into um, Babylon to bring about this punishment upon them taking them out of the land but these people had done too much and God said he wasn't pleased he wasn't at rest that's important we may not get to it tonight but that's important God was not at rest so he wanted to comfort them in this I'm with you this is a bad state, but I see everything that's going on. So that's vision one. Vision two, he sees some horns and he sees some hammers. And these horns were the ones that had done, taken Israel out and punished Israel. That's, you can read all about it in the first chapter. They had taken them and scattered them all over the place. And then he brings in these hammers to knock each one of them out. And each one was hammering another person out each um, Each nation got knocked out, and we talked about those last week. We get to chapter 2, and we've got a vision. Um, This is the third vision. We see a man with a measuring line, and that was, he was going out to measure Jerusalem. So you've got to think about all the things that are happening for these people. They needed to know that God was with them. God tells them that. God was telling his people that, You're not going to get wiped out Israel is going to remain all these other all these other nations were getting wiped out but Israel was going to remain that was vision 2 and then vision 3 he comes in and he talks about this measuring line that they were going to measure out Jerusalem and what we what we determined was that this Jerusalem was a future Jerusalem because God talks about how there's going to be an abundance of people in this kingdom. There's going to be uh, this joy. You're going to see the Lord dwelling among his people. He was going to be the wall around the people because the city needed walls, but God said he was going to be the wall. And so there's this glorious, amazing thing. So they're thinking about, okay, we're not going to get wiped out. God's with us, and that gets us to chapter 3. That was the quickest. Chapter 1, chapter 2 you're ever going to get. So we get to chapter 3. It may go slower at this point. I'm sorry, everyone. (coughs) So we get to the fourth vision. Let's pick it up in uh, verse one of chapter three. It says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So the first thing we see here, Zechariah is our prophet, We see Joshua the high priest, and Joshua was the high priest at this time, okay? You can look back in Ezra, Haggai, here in Zechariah. But even more important than this, we're in like this courtroom that's going on, and what we see is Joshua standing before the Lord. And Joshua is a much broader symbol because he's also... He stands for Israel. The, the thing the high priest always did was he represented the people unto God and God to the people. And so he's standing here before the Lord. Um, and we talked about this, that the angel of the Lord we see is Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ here. So the angel of the Lord is all through these visions because he's always Israel's protector, their deliverer. And that's what they needed to hear and they needed to see. But we have an interesting term here, which I love. And it says the term is standing before. And he says he's standing before. And if you look in other Old, Old Testament passages, I'll read a couple of them, but it's a very specific thing. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.8 says, at that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Second Chronicles 29 11 says my sons do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him and that you should minister to him and burn incense so these passages when it says that he's standing before Joshua is doing the ministry of the high priest before God so we have this image of him standing before there and we've got another character here and this is Satan that's standing here before before him as well and Satan is uh, in Hebrew, it means he's the adversary, and you all remember Job 1. We, we have Satan going before the Lord, bringing accusations against Job. And here he's proclaiming to God Israel's unworthiness. So Zechariah knows that they've been in sin. They know that uh, they you know they were cast out for national sin. Now he brought back, and now he's getting a picture of the high priest standing before God in his... In the... Um, high priestly role, standing before the Lord, serving the Lord, and he's got this image and Satan's standing there accusing him. And we learn from Revelation 12, 10 that, you know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He, that's what he does. He's here to discredit believers before God. The interesting thing is that he's right, right? I mean, that's the thing. We, There's no good in us, right? So he brings these accusations. And the best thing for us to do is go, yep, that's true. That is exactly right. I do have all this sin. I have these problems. So this is a crucial moment as Zechariah is watching this play out. Um, if Joshua is vindicated, then Israel is going to be vindicated. He's representing them. If he's cast out, then so is Israel. And what does God do? It says that God, he vindicates, he, he rebukes Satan and he vindicates Israel. He says these, because these are God's people They've been chosen, and we have the Lord telling Satan that the Lord rebukes him. So we have this second person of the Trinity passing the ultimate responsibility for judgment to the first person, which is cool because in 1 John 2, it tells us that if anyone sins, this is important for us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you come before God on your own merits, you have no advocate. There's no one there to help you out. You're saying all my good deeds, okay, I'm gonna lay this before you, but what do we see in Joshua? He's standing there in these filthy garments, and he's the high priest, right? So we've got, so we can't go before God. We all have sinned, we continue to sin, but Christ is the advocate, he stands there. And if you think about the advocate's job, the advocate pleads the case for the one who is, you know, being accused. And so Jesus is standing here before the righteous judge, and he pleads our case. If we're in Christ, if we've trusted in him, he pleads our case so that we can stand before him and say, it's not by Mike's righteousness that, that I've done anything good, but it's by the righteousness of Christ that I can even come before and stand here. So he knows we're sinners. Jesus knows that, but he pleads our case because he's paid for it by the blood of the cross, right? We bring nothing to the table and God's reason for vindicating Israel What does he say here? He says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? It means somebody being rescued from a dangerous situation. Think about where they were. They were in Babylon. They were in the fire, and God brought them back out of that, right? They're in this terrible situation. So God didn't bring them back. God's not saying, I didn't bring them back just to cast them off. They're my people. I haven't done that. So God knew who he was rescuing. He knew he was someone that was gonna get burned up. If you think about the something being pulled from a fire, the only reason you pull something from a fire is you have something planned for it, right? You're getting pulled, pull something from a fire, say, ooh, I can still use that. And that's what the image we have here. We see that Joshua is standing here and look at the clothes he's wearing. He's clothed in, literally in Hebrew, it says excrement covered clothes as he stood before, before the angel. And so that's speaking of human waste all over the clothing of uh, Joshua. It's the filth of Israel's sin, dirty, smelly, all before God. And they were supposed to be this priestly nation, and here he is. And this gives us a good idea of how God views sin, right? When we compare ourselves to others and we look around, we say, oh, I'm not as bad as, I think Tim mentioned this on Sunday, I'm not as bad as Hitler or Stalin or whoever. But that's not the standard by which God, God looks at us. If we go before him with our own goodness and the things that we can do, our works are as filthy rags. But this is us before salvation and what a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy. But if we think about it, if you wake up every day and you say, you know what, Lord, thank you that I'm a brand plucked from the fire. You know That changes your perspective on going out into the world. God changed, did something for me. I, he, he pulled me out. I'm undeserving of salvation and yet he did it for me all his all my righteous deeds are garbage and yet he saved me by his mercy and we see in verse 4 he says then he answered and spoke to those who stood stood before him take away the filthy garments from him and to him he said see I have removed your iniquity and I will clothe you with rich robes so only God can say that our sins can be forgiven he's the righteous judge only he can say they can be. He says, I'll clothe you with rich robes and literally in Hebrew it means, I'll put on your festival garments. So the priest had two types of clothing. He had basic linen outfit, linen pants, linen coat. It's most likely what he's wearing before the Lord and it's covered in this feces and everything else. Okay, so we have that picture and then the priest also had his holy garments which were beautiful. Exodus 28, Leviticus 8, talk about them. Uh, they were cloth that had was purple, scarlet, um, fine linen. They had onyx stones engraved on them with the 12 tribes of Israel. had a breastplate with 12 precious stones. Had an amazing turban, fantastic turban on his head. And on the, head, on the turban, it said, Holiness unto the Lord. And God says, take off that filthy stuff and put on the robes of glory and beauty. And then Zechariah, He's like getting into these visions. He jumps in and says, hey, put the hat on him too. You know, put that on him. So he knows what's going on. He sees the, the awesomeness is going on. This is a picture of the Day of Atonement. When Aaron would, went in to do the sacrifices for the Day of Atonement for, for all of Israel, he wore a simple linen outfit. He would go in and when he came out, he would put on his festival garments. So here we see the Lord making the atonement in the vision. That's what he's saying. And then God's going to clean up his people. Every one of us needs this. You know, we can't come. We don't have the clothing that we need. You know, we can't stand with our own righteousness. There's no eternal life without our sins being taken away and our being clothed in Christ's righteousness. So the Lord provides the clothing. He provides the righteousness. And not only do our sins get taken away, but we get the righteousness of Christ. Given to us, which is amazing. We were talking. Kai and I were talking on Saturday. The way kids all had some um, testimony times, and some of the leaders gave their testimony. And one of the things that happens to kids who are in the church is they believe that there's nothing great about my testimony if I got saved at a young age. You know, and basically what you're saying when your testimony, you say, "Well, I got saved." you say well my sin really wasn't that bad I'm really not that filthy I'm not standing before God with filthy disgusting robes on I'm a pretty good guy when I believe that my salvation my testimony didn't mean much you, our testimonies are all the amazing most amazing miraculous thing when we come to Christ he's the one that did all the work I mean that's every one of you, every salvation in this room is a miraculous deed that God gets the credit for not us we've already we see that all the time and so never should we look at it and say, I don't have a testimony. You have a testimony because you were dying and going to hell (laughs) and Christ saved you just like he saved me, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a drug dealer, drug addict, whatever it might be, or you didn't fall into those things, you weren't going to make it. And God did this miraculous deed for you. So it's miraculous. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. So Verse 6 says, Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. So he starts talking to Joshua here, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Here, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So Joshua's command that then God gives to him is, Will you walk? You need to walk in my ways and keep my commands you know, obedience in general, I think, but it's also talking about the priestly function. He's gonna be reinstated and representing God to the people once again, which is amazing. If Israel as a nation does it, they're gonna be the ones who will be the priestly nation that they need to be again. So they're gonna, and he says that Joshua's gonna rightly judge his house. And one of the interesting things is in the millennial kingdom, is Israel, that's the kind of thing that they're going to be doing. They're going to be bringing people to the Lord. They're going to be bringing people to Christ. Israel's going to bring the nations into the presence of God. All of this is pointing to the Messiah. And if you think about what Jesus said, he told us the same thing, right? If we love him, we'll obey his commands. And it's impossible to serve as God wants us to serve if we're not going to be walking in obedience to him. There's just no way. The other beautiful aspect, and I talked about it a little bit, but... God doesn't save us for no purpose. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, he's got a purpose for you. We last week, last week, two weeks ago we had VBS, we taught him Ephesians 2.10, which says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved to live purposeful priestly lives out into this world, proclaiming and living for him. Pretty amazing. So through Zechariah, Joshua, he he talks about Zechariah seeing this, that he and his fellow men who are there, so it appears that there's some of his other priestly gentlemen are there, says they're going to be a sign of someone who is to come. And it's the branch. He calls it my servant, the branch. And as we see, he's the redeemer. Literally, it means uh, the branch speaks of fruitfulness and life. And it literally means a sprout or a shoot. So every time you see a shoot pop up or a little sprout, I was weeding, I was uh, trimming my hedges over the weekend. And you know, sometimes you hit a, you hit a bush and you go, I don't even think this thing's alive anymore. But if you see a little bud, you see a sprout, there's life there. And, And this branch is gonna bring life into. So in the Old Testament, the branch was spoken of many times. Isaiah talks about him a lot. But it's also, it moves over into the New Testament. So Isaiah spoke about the Messiah that was to come, that was going to be this branch. And, you know, as we're seeing the branch in the Old Testament, we say, does Christ fulfill those things in the New Testament? Is this what he did? So the, the branch of David is spoken of in Isaiah. And Matthew describes Jesus as that, so is the branch of David. So he's, he has this Davidic kingly line, and that's what Matthew focuses on. He shows his kingly line. Here in Zechariah, he says, my servant, the branch, and Mark shows him as the servant of the Lord, is what Mark does. Later in Zechariah, we'll see it in chapter six, the man whose name is the branch. So he's gonna be a man, and uh, Luke shows Christ as the perfect man. And then Isaiah calls the branch, the branch of Jehovah, and John presents the Messiah as God so we have this transition into the New Testament which is fascinating of all these times they talk about the branch in the Old Testament and this one who is to come is also called the stone you'll see that there with seven eyes so when you see eyes in Scripture it speaks of knowledge and seven speaks of perfection and we know that perfect knowledge is omniscience so the Messiah that's to come is going to be have complete knowledge in other words he's going to be God who has complete knowledge but God so when we look at the stone in the Old Testament, right, the stone was talked about. Um, Isaiah speaks of the stone of refuge and Jesus did those types of things. The Israelites were waiting for the stone of refuge, but the biggest thing that Isaiah talked about, he said that the stone would be a stone of stumbling for them. And that's clearly what happened with the Jewish leaders when Christ came. Um, today we look at Christ and he's a stone, right? We, um, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having built, been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We don't exist without the stone that keeps this church moving. That's We build on that cornerstone, otherwise it all crumbles. And he makes, he says this, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day, which is another interesting thing. I think we have two things happening here. One was Christ died on the cross, and his sin on the cross, that removing iniquity in one day. But in the future, we know that Israel is going to see the one that they pierced, and there's going to be a conversion for them as well, which is... I believe we've got these two things that they're gonna see it in one day and it's gonna happen and they're gonna be transformed. So because when we look at verse 10, it says in that day says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So there's gonna be peace all over the world. I, if there's something that I think we need in this world, it's peace, right? I mean, there is, uh, it's loony right now, but uh, we are—we are we are, if, could you imagine peace like that? Vines and figs speak of times of peace, and God is bringing great peace. Gentiles and Jews coming together, beautiful restoration. It's going to be an amazing time of salvation, which uh, is truly amazing. So the, the, um, the one thing I just want us to think about is this same salvation is available to everyone in this room that, that is being talked about here, this getting your sins taken away, being cleansed the the dirty garments being taken off of you having that view that if if I stand before God I'm gonna end up having an advocate in Jesus Christ you know he's bringing uh, the nation needed to know about this cleansing but we need to know about it as well because he they're encouraging the nation with this information that that God is there and he's gonna cleanse them of their sin Um, God sees us as something special pulled from the fire and now he's calling us to walk in obedience to him and move forward so As we get to, so that was an encouragement, I believe, for Joshua and the people. But then we're going to get to chapter 4. And chapter 4 talks, we're going to see an encouragement. There were two people, main people. Well, you have Joshua the high priest. You've got Zechariah, our prophet. And we also have Zerubbabel, who's kind of like the guy, the the civil leader that's kind of running the show. So let's look at, um, I wish I had uh, given them the picture to put up here. But we're going to talk about Zechariah 4. Let's pick up verse one. It says, now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. So you ever been up all night? <laughs> this is all happening in one night. And uh, he keeps seeing a vision and he's nodding off all the time. So we have Zechariah, he's a lot like us. Uh, he, uh, so he wakes him up again as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he says to me, and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold and a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left, (coughs) other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? So I didn't tell you guys tonight, I told last week, but... There's Zechariah, and then there's this interpreting angel that's with him all the time, and he's asking him questions, and he's telling him what's going on. So when you see this angel, he's the interpreter, kind of giving him the info. Say this is what's going on here. So, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to you. So he's awakened again, and we see a lampstand. So if you've seen a menorah, that's kind of what we're seeing here. So the lampstand that's got seven lamps on it, or seven, yeah, lamps on it. I'm going to try to describe it. I should have given him a picture. This is the best we, you know, like there's a bowl above it. We've got olive trees dumping oil into it. Uh, none of that's so it's all happening kind of automatically. We've got this filling these wicks, we've got lights on them, um, so filling the pipes with oil. So there's a couple ways to read it, but that's kind of what it sounds like. We've got the, if you just kind of read through it, you can kind of get that vision of a bowl above with, and pipes running down to every one of them. So the oil's coming directly from the olive tree to the bowl to the lamps. That's what's happening here. Continuous lighting. And typically what happened was that the priests had to constantly go in. They had to trim the wicks, put oil in the lamps, and they were doing that constantly. So it was a probably one of the most tedious things that you would do was this constant making sure these lamps were, were running. And so what do we see here? So what's this showing? It, there's no human involvement in this, right? There's nothing that's going on. There's God is producing the tree, the oil is flowing, it's flowing into the lamps, purely of operation of God. and in the Old Testament, oil symbolized the Holy Spirit, and the New Testament symbolized the Holy Spirit. And so we have this bowl symbolizing the Holy Spirit with this constant flow, and that's what's going on when he, when he talks, to Zechariah, or talks to Zerubbabel here. It's an unlimited supply, think about that, unlimited supply. And so we see that the Spirit of God powers this whole thing, and he says not by might, in the Hebrew, that refers to the strength of many, okay, and not by power. In the Hebrew, that refers to the strength of a great one. So you can think, all the a bunch of people aren't going to do it, nor this one great person isn't going to be able to do this. The accomplishing of Israel's restoration, the building of this temple, was going to be due to the collective operation. It wasn't going to be about strong men, strong people, but it was going to be because of the Holy Spirit. That's that's probably a verse that you've said, uh, seen, talked about, not by, not by might nor by power, but by the, by the Spirit. We hold on to that type of thing, and that's something that we see in the New Testament in Acts. All the power coming from the Holy Spirit flowing through. So Zerubbabel is the chief ruler of Israel, and God says that the rebuilding is going to happen, and it will be done in a way that only God can get the glory for it, attributed to him. And this would have been a huge in- encouragement to Zerubbabel, because if you're running the show, you've got 43,000 people and they're trying to clean up this place. Can you imagine the rubble? They didn't have bulldozers. I mean, this is like a daily going out there, scraping things. They got animals doing it. I can't even imagine. Every day must've been exhausting. Like this is never going to get done. So what an encouragement for Zerubbabel that he would see that God's going to say, it's not going to be by great works, but I'm going to do this. The Holy Spirit working through this is going to make it. It's amazing. Uh, because if you think about what we do as a church, we don't have the resources to do anything for God without the Holy Spirit. We can do all kinds of amazing good stuff. You can put on a show, but nothing of spiritual significance is gonna happen if the Holy Spirit isn't working in it. So, um, Zerubbabel had many obstacles and when we, we see uh, verse seven, they probably look like mountains to him and God says it's gonna, he's gonna lower the mountains, they're gonna look like a plain. God's going to stand there. When God's in something, mountains turn to plains. I mean, that should be a song. (coughs) Um, Nothing's going to stand against it. And he says, uh, then he says the the capstone's going to be there. And the capstone in Hebrew was designated as the final stone to mark the completion of it. So he's trying to tell him that this is going to be completed. It's all going to come to a completion. It was going to be completed with shouts of joy, shouts of grace, they were gonna know it was only by the grace of God that this was actually accomplished. Um, so I was thinking about narrow way. And I was thinking about this, how this whole thing got to, got started. You know, how do we know when we're walking in the spirit and the spirit's leading something and something's going to happen, right? And I don't know if you know Beck's story and I, I won't do all the details. He's got all the details, but the, you, you know, God spoke to him. Well, how do, you, how do you put yourself in a position to say, okay, I'm going to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in my life? Like, what's that going to look like? Well, you, I, I can just go from, I think Beck was a classic example of that. He was close to the Lord. You got to be close to the Lord. You know, he's seeking the Lord. The Lord impressed upon him. Hey, I think we should do this thing. And so what, do you, what else you do? You run out and you just start doing it like a crazy man by my power. Beck's going to run out by one guy and do everything. You know what he did? He talked to godly counsel. So if if you believe that the Lord's speaking to you, find godly counsel. Talk to those people. That's what God wants you to do. The Spirit is going to be working and and reaffirming that in other people. So he goes, talks to godly counsel. He continues in prayer, seeking God's face. You know why something like this happens? Because he's in the Word. He knows the heart of God. When you know the heart of God, it's real easy to de- discern determine His will and see what God's going to do. Young people need to know the Lord. They need to be engaged and living for the Lord. It only makes sense that something like this is what God would want to begin to happen because we know the heart of God, that he wants to see people changed. And so that's what we see here, not by might, not by the might of Beck or all of you or all the help staff, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, things like this happen in the church, right? And so that's a great example of of how God uses something like that. Verse eight, it says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. So we got it started of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord's which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So this stresses the certainty. He laid it and it's gonna finish. That's what he's trying to tell Zerubbabel. It's all gonna be done in Zerubbabel's lifetime. He's gonna finish it and God's gonna be glorified. And with then, is gonna know that this was all from the Lord. And then there's one of the most amazing, I, I know we've focused on some other things, but this is one of the most amazing things, what he says in, in verse 10. Um, He says, for who has despised the day of small things? It's slightly confusing, I think, but we shouldn't shouldn't look at the small things lightly and despise them, is what he's saying. There is a great comment from Wearsby on this, so just listen to this. Bible history is the record of God using small things. When God wanted to set the plan of salvation in motion, he started with a little baby named Isaac in Genesis 21. When he wanted to overthrow Egypt and set his people free, he used a baby's tears, Moses in the Nile, right? He used a shepherd boy in a sling to defeat a giant, 1 Samuel 17, and a little lad's lunch to feed a multitude in John 6. He delivered the Apostle Paul from death by using a basket and a rope, in Acts. Never despise the day of small things, for God is glorified in small things and uses them to accomplish great things. Could you imagine what Zerubbable was going through every day, going and saying, let's see, we moved five rocks today, and what a waste today was. You know, it was one of the most, I can't believe it, this is the worst. And coming there, and yet God is saying, it's those small things that you do every day. You know, whether you're working for an HVAC company or you're, I don't know what anybody else does. That's what my son does. <laughs> Whatever you end up doing, you know, I I work, I I sit at a computer all day and work on computer stuff. And I go, you can go in there every day and go, well, I don't have opportunities. HR, my company doesn't pay me to stand there and share the gospel with people. I can't take two hours and go over and explain the gospel to somebody. But what I can do is I can take people to lunch. I can take opportunities to live a Christ-like life, to engage with people as Christ wants me to and it's all those little small things that you guys are going to do in life whatever it happens to be god not only is using you to reach other people but he's transforming you into the person he needs you to be so don't look at those little things and say i can't believe all i did was move the chairs for narrow way that's all i did and i just kept moving them and move them back and moving this way you know what god uses every little thing to transform your life for the kingdom which is amazing and i'm thinking Boy, what an encouragement that is! There's no wasted time for you as a believer. You're going to be, you're out there. What has God called you to do? Do it. Who cares, right? So just do what God calls you to do, and it's going to be blessed. And so, keeping our eyes on doing the work and not despising—how uh, did I get any credit for? Her? None of that matters. The one who matters is God. He sees all that's going on, and so. In those little things, he's going to transform you. So don't despise the day of the small things. And this building of the temple, I mean, it's a four-year process it took them to build this temple and get it up and running. There had to be a lot of bad days, and he's telling Zerubbabel, don't despise the day. I'm using this thing. Look what it said. It said he was, that it pleased God to see that. It pleased him, um, wherever it is, is, first yeah, the plumb line in the hand is written, for these seven eyes rejoice to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel. He's talking about the seven eyes. He's talking about the eyes of the Lord, which see everything. He's pleased. Just keep doing what God wants you to do. He's pleased to see it. So verse 11, it says, then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? So uh, Zechariah, he's he's a lot like me. I can't understand the things that are happening. So he says, uh, what are these two olive trees? At the right, of the lamp standing at its left. And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So Zechariah is still not sure what's happening and he asked for clarification, the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Um, these two anointed ones, the anointed ones are sons of oil is, is what that literally means. And so in Hebrew idioms, the son of something is, is radically characterized by that thing. So these two are characterized um, by the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit, that they are the sons of oil. See, So in Israel, there were two specific people who were anointed, the king and the high priest. And the man who stood in the place of the king was Zerubbabel, he's a civil leader, and you had Joshua the high priest. And they're charged to stand by the Lord and lead the nation purely by the Spirit of God flowing through them so that you have this. So Zechariah's vision here, he sees Zerubbabel completing the temple, what an amazing encouragement. People restored all through the power of the Spirit of God, not through their own greatness. And God is gonna use this to encourage Zerubbabel to continue the work. And one thing I just want to encourage you, if God calls you to a work, if he calls you to do something, he's going to supply the resources to complete it. So it's, it's a cakewalk at that point, right? You just trust in the Lord. <clears throat> so this is, le- this, this is if you're trying to build a temple, God's called you to, or he's calling us to build the church. It's the same thing, trusting in the Holy Spirit and moving forward. And I think we can do chapter 5. Isn't this exciting? Chapter 5 is short. We'll, we'll take a look at it. So one of the things we can think about when we get to chapter 5, um, chapter 5 is basically the removal of sins. We've, taught, we've given encouragement to Zerubbabel, we've given encouragement to Joshua, and now it's like, well, how is this all going to take place when we still have this sin? Like, how do you keep moving forward with, with sin still around? And, you know, the Psalms talk about how God feels about sin. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So God can't be around wickedness. Um, but in practice... It seems like God is very tolerant of sin, right? We see wickedness around us all the time. The psalmists complain about that all the time. Like, why is the sin still continuing to be around? But the big thing we need to understand is God's going to judge sin. He's going to judge sin in his time. And one of the beautiful things for all of us is that God hasn't judged sin yet. We've had an opportunity to come to Christ. So his long-suffering is allowing people to come to know him. Um, when's it going to happen, when's it going to be, and how is it going to be is what we'll we'll look at and answer here in in this chapter. So uh, So he sees another vision. He says, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stone. So we have a scroll here. They didn't have books. They had scrolls. A scroll is two pieces, two sticks wound with papyrus hide. And in the Hebrew, you would read it backwards. So it's kind of rolling and you would read, roll and read. And the vision is this large scroll flying through the air, 20 cubits by 10 cubits, 30 feet by 15 feet for all of us Americans, Um, writing on both sides of it. um, Flying scroll, it must be completely unwound at this point if we're seeing the dimensions of it flying up in the sky. 30 by 15 is the exact same size of the holy place in the tabernacle. So this would be significant. God's made this scroll to conform to the divine dimensions of the holy place so the scroll contains this curse of god's judgment against sinners and god uses the word of god as his basis for judging sin you know men tend to want to redefine redefine sin what's truly wrong something that's wrong today in 20 years will no longer be considered sin by our culture i mean it's just what's been going on when i was a kid I can't even tell you how many things have changed. What's no, it's all acceptable now. And, but God's standard doesn't change. And that's what we're seeing here. So the judgment goes out upon the face of the whole earth. This is similar to Old Testament passages like in Ezekiel and Revelation where they're opening the scrolls. We see that same sort of judgment coming. And God's going to judge everyone based upon the same standard. It's not going to be a standard for me, standard for you, depending on whether you did good stuff or not. And typically what happened with a scroll was, especially the law of Moses, you had blessings on one side and curses on the other. So if there was uh, the blessings of what, uh, I think Deuteronomy, somewhere in Deuteronomy 18 maybe, <coughs> they've got the, uh, talking about the blessings and cursings. And so that would typically be what would be on a scroll, but this one's different. We have a unique one here. There's, it's got curses on both sides. Uh, there's two commandments mentioned. One is... One on one side, there's a commandment about swearing falsely by God's name. That's the third commandment. And on the other side is a command against stealing. That's the eighth commandment. So you have the center commandment of the Ten Commandments on each side. So there's scholars believe that five commandments were on one side and five commandments were on the other. And so it's almost a summarization of all of the Ten Commandments, God's standard by which he's going to judge. And James 2.10 says that, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. So there's, this, there's a situation where we, we see these two, but if you've, if you've sinned in any way, you're gonna be guilty of breaking the whole law. And so these may be the only two referenced, but it's clearly that it's covering it all. So what is the punishment? It says here, he will be expelled, means to be wiped out or purged. So this is a total and complete judgment that is coming. The scroll flying through the sky for all to see has an aspect to it that no one is going to be able to feign ignorance that they don't know this stuff. It's, it's visible. Um, and sadly, our world today is becoming more and more immune to and accepting of sin, and, and we're seeing that a judgment is coming. Verse 4 says, the Lord of hosts is sending it out. So if there's any doubt that it's going to happen... God says that he will bring it forth. Revelation 6 tells us that there's going to be a terrible judgment that is to come. But God's gracious in our day, suffering long for people to repent. And one day, all this is going to come to an end. He's no longer going to be uh, letting sin continue to reign. There's always terrible consequences to sin and rebellion to God. And the longer we dwell in it, the worse things get. So... Man may think they can hide sin, but it says it's going to go into the houses. It's going to go into everywhere. Every nook and cranny he's going to find. It's not, you're not going to be able to escape this. So once we recognize sin as believers or any person, we should turn to God and, and confess it. So verse 5 says, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. So we have a second vision here, kind of confusing, right? We, God's judgment on wickedness itself. He says, this is wickedness in this basket, not the sinner so much as sin, it's gonna be, it's gonna be expelled. So the Jews had recently returned from Babylon, and one of the things that was major in Babylon was this materialistic attitude. And and so they hung around Babylon just long enough to also get into this materialistic attitude. When we see this large basket, the word is an ephah, and the ephah was the largest measuring grain, and it holds about eight gallons, um, used to carry flour and barley, large enough for a small person to fit in. and it says, this is their resemblance through, throughout the earth. The NIV, NIV, NIV reads, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. So I think it's a little um, less confusing for me anyway. <clears throat> so this is what the people are doing, and it's wickedness. So he's seeing the iniquity of Israel is full, it's built up into an ephah. You're sinning by the ephah, it's fully heaped up. And so Israel's materialistic attitude was full, and it reached the maximum, and Israel had picked up this attitude by dwelling in the land that they weren't supposed to be in, weren't supposed to get involved in, so God didn't want this in his people. And if God was showing displeasure for uh, materialistic attitudes at that time, could you imagine how he feels about it today in our day and age? Materialistic, where it's, it's prevalent in our society like crazy, and so, that can be a great influence upon our hearts to be materialistic. Are we looking? Are we looking after those things? And and I think about this. Why is this so anti-God? Why is why is something like materialism so anti-God? It, you know, it reforce it reinforces in our brains that we're in charge, that we're the masters of our own kingdom. I'm making it happen. We don't need God for anything. It's the ultimate form of self-promotion, right? To be materialistic, and. For people who've got nothing except what God has blessed them with, it's the most insane thing that we could do, right? But our world is about self-promotion, materialism, and all that stuff. And we see this lid on the evil of wickedness. It's going to be slammed down. This lead cover, lead was heavier than a customary stone, so it would guarantee that what was inside it was not going to get out. And the final thing that God is going to put an end to will be the economic materialistic attitude of the last days. So that's why a lot of people think that we're in the last days. Remember when we studied in Revelation that Babylon, uh, they were tearing down Babylon, and Babylon was that materialistic attitude in the last days is spoken of. And that's what we see here. We see in verse 6 that this isn't a minor problem, it goes out across the whole world, and God's slamming the lid on the basket. Not one thing's going to escape. It's a sweeping judgment. So we have this woman symbolizing evil, the materialistic system. And the word for wickedness is a feminine word, so that's why it's probably portrayed as a woman, but um, she's wickedness. She's just a symbol of what's going on here. Remember that the the church is the bride of Christ, so don't get too uh, upset, ladies, that wickedness is a woman. So... So, but it needs to be taken out of the land, this wickedness needs. And God's the one that places the lid on it. God has the authority over sin, and he's going to remove it from Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden we see this vision, this ephah, the wickedness in it, and two women come flying along. They lift it up and carry it off uh, on its way, and they're taking it to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, and Shinar is Babylon. So it's another name for Babylon. So some believe that these women are e- agents of evil, but it's... It's odd that they would take wickedness and, and take it away, but storks were an unclean animal, so it's unlikely that they would symbolize godly agents, but we have this wickedness. Basically, we see that it's going to be taken out of the land, and the picture that God sharing in this vision is that sin's going to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be purged from the land, and it seems that, sin is, that the purging is going to begin with his people, and it's going to be taken out, and when you look, Babylon, wickedness, is ends up being put on a pedestal, which means it's being worshiped in Babylon. And if you, materialism is being worshiped today, you know, we're, we're getting into these times where you say, could this be the day? You know, is, is, is God going to begin to do this purging at some point? Our society is, is convinced that these things matter and God's saying, that's the thing that I'm gonna get rid of, I don't want anymore. Um, Happiness doesn't come with the accumulation of things. But, but God's saying this attitude has no place among his people, right? That's what, it's, that's what he's saying here. So we can't become complacent with sin and tell ourselves that the small sins, you know, don't matter. Envy, gossip, lying, those are the small things. But hatred in my heart, God wants those things taken out, taken out, getting out of our lives. So this purging must take place in our lives if we're going to continue to be the blessing. And that's what they needed to be this blessing. What a picture that God wants us to have in our lives. And as we see this encouragement that's coming to, um, to Israel at this time, that they see the wickedness around them. They see all these things going on. They see the hardship that they're in. And yet God is with them through it. And he's with us in in the midst of what we're going through in life. And so as as we think on these things, I just want you to to realize that, you know, we do nothing without, without God in it, working in and through us, spending time in prayer, seeking his face. You're, Narrow Way has a few more days here. Just use this as an opportunity to just surrender to God anything in your life and for the older people who are here. Surrender the things in your life that God wants you to get rid of in your life. Doesn't want wickedness among his people. So why don't we pray? So, Lord, I just thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you for this prophecy in and, and Zechariah and just what a beautiful thing it is, God, to know that you speak to your people, that, you're, um, that you are near us, you are with us, God. I just thank you, Lord, for this day. I pray that as we go out, Lord, we, will, we won't despise the day of the small things that we do for you and your kingdom. Lord, would you just encourage us to just uh, continue to do what you've called us to do and, and know that... Um, that you are going to be glorified through it and in us, Lord. So we just thank you, God, for this day. Will you bless us as we head out? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.